Well, as promised, we're going to discuss in this segment uh, a little bit about California politics, and there certainly seems to be a surplus of that at the moment. Joining us in this segment will be the publisher of the California Journal, A.G. Block. A.G. Block began writing about politics in 1968 when he earned a degree in political science from Bradley University in Peoria, Illinois. He later edited a weekly newspaper in Idaho and also served as a correspondent for the Gannett chain of newspapers. He did a stint on the Ketchum City Council and led hiking treks to Nepal before moving to California in 1980. He became the managing editor of the California Journal in 1983 and the executive editor in 2000. He serves as co-editor of the California Political Almanac and California Government and Politics Annual. He also contributes to national political publications. Thank you for coming on the program. Glad to. Um, You guys have been, of course, immersed in what's going on in California, the recall effort. And uh, how is that changing the normal day-to-day operations here? Well, it changes it because uh, instead of focusing on, on other issues or even gearing up for, for next year's election, which we start to do about this point, like everyone else in, in our business, we're having to focus very heavily on the day-to-day, the hour-to-hour permutations of the recall election. And while it's interesting and it's fun, it's also, as it is for a lot of other folks, incredibly distracting. What's the consensus down at the Journal on what's going to happen next Tuesday? Well, there, I think the consensus is beginning to form, just not just at the Journal, but things are beginning to solidify, and uh, even Democrats that you talk to over at the Capitol are beginning to, they're sort of resigned to the fact that, that uh, the governor, it looks like the governor's going to be recalled, and it, it looks at this point like Schwarzenegger is going to be elected to replace him. There are some, you know, everyone, there's some hedges in that, of course. Yeah. And um, one of the hedges is is that no one quite knows what Latinos will do. There was an interesting poll uh, from the Tomas Rivera Center that was uh, showed. It wasn't on 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 the recall particularly, but it 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 did show that that um, Latinos overwhelmingly support Cruz Bustamante over Schwarzenegger. The unknown in that is is how many of them are going to vote. Latinos didn't vote in great numbers in 2002. There are some unknowns that could could change what people are beginning to think is the inevitable outcome of this election. Well, we certainly uh, will be watching it uh, avidly, like the whole world will be. Apparently, the whole world is. Um, it is um, it is one of those things when when you have a debate among gubernatorial candidates for a recall election that is carried live in places like Japan and England. You, you know that the swirl for this election is far beyond anything that, that we've experienced in California. And, and I think you could say that Schwarzenegger's the reason for that. If, if, it, if his name was, was Arnold Schwartz and, <laughs> and he was not an Austrian bodybuilder who made Terminator movies, you know, nobody would care about this. The California Journal talked last month, I guess, about uh, people are really noticing that well, what's happening in California may be the vanguard of what may happen elsewhere, and that people are talking about a major shakeup on the political horizon in America, with California leading the way as it did back in the 70s with Prop 13. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I like that for an answer. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, there's no question that, that the, the thing that's driving this was, was not Daryl Ice's million point four dollars that that got the recall on the ballot that's not what drives it yeah 
uh, that got it on the ballot, but that tapped into something else. And the something else is, is, a, is a recognizable voter anger. Yeah. And it's not necessarily voter anger at Gray Davis, um, which is one of the reasons that I think a lot of legislators are somewhat nervous. Uh, because once once uh, Davis is recalled, then they're next. You know, you start looking at, well, all right, now what? Now who do we go after? Right. So there's a recognizable voter anger, and it is directed at, at the fact that government doesn't seem to work very well anymore, and it certainly doesn't seem to work on behalf of ordinary people. Right. It works on behalf of special interests. It, it, it ties itself into knots. Uh, in order to to accommodate special what are termed special interests, whether it's labor, whether it's large corporations, whether it's Indian casinos, whatever, voter anger is directed at people in in political office who don't seem to be paying much attention to ordinary people and do seem to pay an extraordinary amount of attention to to special interests. It, is it just a phenomenon local to to California? I don't think so. I didn't realize I was reading uh, in the journal that uh, that recalls and uh, budget deficits go together, that uh, three of the four previous governors have actually been targeted. And in 1968, Governor Reagan had something like 550,000 signatures raised against him. But that uh, it was the feeling in the, um, in the journal, I guess, the editors, that... Uh, there's several things combining here. It's term limits, it's, uh, it's redistricting, it's the two-thirds uh, rule to pass a budget. There's a lot of factors involved. There's a lot of factors involved in making, in, in giving the impression, and in, in, in some cases an accurate impression, of government as being dysfunctional. Those things that you've cited, which we cited in one of our recent issues, have really come together uh, at this time. Gray Davis just happened to be standing in the crosshairs yeah. when all of this emerged. You know, the budget deficit received a tremendous amount of publicity. People notice when your your deficit is $38 billion. <laughs> they notice that sort of thing. Uh-huh. And uh, they were able to whittle it down, but they really weren't very successful at eliminating it. And they did it without taxes, which is going to cause some pain. I noticed that the, the car tax, which, which went up, yeah, begins well, today. Oh, it does. Yes, those, oh. those bills start going out in the mail today, and and that's bad timing for Gray Davis. <laughs> you know, that's just bad timing. Oh my! So the truth is that you can't get yourself out of the kind of, of fiscal morass that California found itself in this year. Thirty-eight billion dollars. You can't do that just by cutting programs. Right. You could shut down the University of California and the prison system. You still wouldn't get there. Right. The pragmatic approach is to, to cut, certainly, and to cut programs and to cut down to the essentials. But it's also the fact that you've got to raise more revenue. And I think Arnold Schwarzenegger is going to discover that about a nanosecond after he takes the oath of office. <laughs> and he probably already understands it. Ronald Reagan, in 1967, when he became governor of California, on a no-tax pledge, by the way, uh-huh. um, almost, he, Reagan always hedged. He, he wasn't absolutely firm, I'm never going to raise taxes. But, you know, he, he certainly campaigned against against big government. Came into office, and, and Reagan recognized, and the people around him recognized, the only way you were going to get out of that fiscal problem was you had to raise taxes. At, at the time, it was the largest tax increase in California history. Ronald Reagan did that. Pete Wilson did that. And uh, I think Schwarzenegger, is, there's a lot of thought that he is probably the only kind of governor who could raise taxes or get the legislature to go along with that if he'll do it. I mean, he said he won't, so we'll see. 
Speaking of uh, speaking of Reagan, this might be a good time to put in a plug for uh, one of your uh, contributing editors who, who joins you over at the California Journal, Lou Cannon, who's an expert on Ronald Reagan, currently has a book out on uh, on Reagan. Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's Lou Cannon's fifth book on Ronald Reagan, and it, it, it fills in the gap. It, it is a really a definitive work on Reagan's governorship from 1967 to 1974, when he left office. Uh, his eight-year term as governor, and uh, Lou was uh, covered him part of that time as uh, as a correspondent here in Sacramento. In the second term, quite frankly, he he relied on interviews, of course, with people who are still here who were, worked either for Reagan or in the legislature at that time. Sure. But also relied on on the archives of California Journal, which began in 1970, just as Reagan was running for re-election. One of the things that's notable about reading that book is the contrast between how government operated, how the legislature and the governor got along in those days, and what, how, they, how they went about their business, how they fashioned compromises, even though they came, you know, the legislature was led by very liberal Democrats. Uh, Jess Unruh for a while, and then Bob Moretti was the Speaker of the Assembly uh, in Reagan's second term. Right. And both of them were fairly far to the left in terms of their, their politics, but they came to accommodation with Reagan and accomplished some, some rather amazing uh, welfare reform, uh, Medi-Cal reform. Uh, there was, of course, dealing with budgets that, uh, as I said earlier, started out in the red, but they were able to work together. There was an, there was an atmosphere of civility at the Capitol that allowed people who disagreed philosophically still to to not personalize that and to work for what they could do and to find the common ground and to work for for solutions to problems rather than grandstanding. There's a lot to learn, I think, perhaps looking back at Reagan. Well, there is. There, there are also an awful lot of differences between Ronald Reagan and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger. And, and um, if you read the Cannon book, you'll, you'll understand exactly what, uh, what those differences are. Um, uh, Ronald Reagan was was very active in uh, in politics and in public affairs long before he ran for governor. He had been the president of, of a very uh, well known and uh, high profile union, the Screen Actors Guild. The only union leader ever to become president. In that capacity, he was involved in a lot of very serious and, and detailed negotiations with studios back in the for- late 40s and early 50s. Uh, he was involved in Republican politics uh, long before he ran for governor of California. He gave the keynote speech, a rousing speech, at, at the Republican National Convention in 1964, two years before he ran for governor, a speech on behalf of Barry Goldwater. Yeah. In several ways, he had a vision of what he thought government ought to do that had been formulated over the years, and uh, and he had a, a, a much more pragmatic uh, experience in politics. He worked on the hustings. He went out yeah. and campaigned for people. So he had a cachet of support sure. among Republicans that Arnold Schwarzenegger doesn't have and has never done. There are strong differences as well. I will tell you that even given that, that long history of Reagan's, uh, he came in as a novice governor and um, was totally reliant on, on the people he brought in to help him run the government. He was, in many ways, like Schwarzenegger, at least as the way Schwarzenegger appears to be, that sort of setting out the broad agenda and then hiring people to carry it out. That's how Reagan operated. It seems to be what Schwarzenegger is doing as well. Yeah, in this uh, the same article that uh, that that you editors um, I guess put out uh, two months ago, 
something struck my eye, talking about term limits set by voters in 1990, that um, in the old days, there was a personal history could develop between, say, an individual conservative and liberal, and that they might cross party lines. But today, without that, uh, we're seeing much more... Uh, control in the hands of party leaders that, that punish people if they do cross the aisle. Well, there's, there are two things contributing to that. One is, one is term limits, but the other is, is redistricting. Redistricting created a vast number of very safe districts, right. safe for one party or the other. Right. So what happens in a case like that is that the real election doesn't take place in November between the Republican and the Democrat. The real election in that district takes place in March in the primary between Republicans or between Democrats. And what tends to happen in that case is that the more ideologically rigid candidates tend to be the better organized, they tend to have the stronger base in those districts, and they tend to emerge from those primaries as the candidate. And when they do that, that means they're going to get elected in November because the district registration is so lopsided that if the Republicans have the registration edge in the district, no Democrat can win that district. And the same is true on the other side. If the Democrats have the registration edge, especially by more than 10 points of registration, then it's very difficult or impossible for the Republican to win that district. So you, what you get is a candidate who tends to be ideologically to the left or right, depending on whether it's a Democrat or Republican. And they have to be in order to, to be successful in their primaries. And so when they get up here, well, what are they? Well, they're ideologically to the left or ideologically to the right. It is increasingly difficult to find common ground between those two polar opposites. The other thing that exacerbates the problem, as you, as you indicated, was, was the leadership. Leadership want, especially among Republicans, Republicans are in such a minority in both the, the Senate and the Assembly that, that they have to use whatever power, whatever leverage they have. And what they have is the ability to block any legislation that requires a two-thirds vote. There right. Are, and that is the budget, and it's also tax increases and any, any major spending bills. So Republicans, if all they have to be a player is the ability to block, then they have to hang together to do that. Democrats can't come in and peel off Republicans to help get them to the two-thirds vote they need to, to pass these bills, pass the budget. That's where leadership comes in and said, look, you know, you're in a district where no Democrat's going to threaten you. But if you break off the reservation here and you go support the Democrats who want to raise taxes in order to balance this budget, I'm going to find a, a conservative Republican in your district. I'm going to come into the primary next year. I'm going to beat you. And you're going to be out of a job. You know, that's a powerful message. So it prevents those Republicans from doing what they may feel is in the better interests of their, their constituents or may feel they, that we need to take a pragmatic, more pragmatic approach. Maybe we do need some tax increases, but I'm not going to be the person who lifts my head above the trench because I see exactly what happens. And there's plenty of evidence of what happened. The Republicans who supported a budget in 2002 and then ran in 2002, there were five or six of them, and not one of them survived. Hmm. One lost a Senate race up in the in the northern part of the state, uh, and, the, and the issue that was used against him was that he voted for the budget. Wow! Another one ran in a congressional primary down in Fresno area and uh, lost. Why? What was the issue? Voted for the budget. Hmm. Uh, it was even an issue against some candidates down in, in the San Diego area who hadn't actually voted for the budget, but were always suspect. We're, we're <laughs> who might enough. have voted for the budget. So it was used in that campaign. You know, oh my. So, so 
there is evidence that if you do break ranks and vote for a budget, you're, you're going to get beat. They use people like Mike Briggs, who was the, the assemblyman down in Fresno who ran for con- in a congressional primary and got beat. You know, his head's on a pole somewhere, and it's still uh, an icon for Republicans. That's the consequence. That's what happens when you stray off the reservation. Now, can Arnold Schwarzenegger give cover to a Republican who may, who may feel that that's in or her constituents' best interest to have, you know, to raise taxes in order yeah. to balance the budget can, can because co- it saves co- programs in my district? Can he do that? Uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, I, some people feel he can, that Coat he'll give cover. Some people will say, nah, won't matter. Well, A.G. Block, thank you very much for your analysis of what's uh, going on in California politics. Uh, before you go, I, under- I understand that your love of and expertise on politics is matched by that of sports, particularly baseball. You used to be uh, uh, actually a sports commentator for, for KXPR here in Sacramento. Long time ago, yeah. So what's going to happen in the baseball playoffs? <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm continually befuddled and surprised by play, baseball playoffs because um, unlike the, the regular season, which, which really does require the best teams to, to play at a, a highly competitive level for a long period of time, anything can happen in a short series. And uh, we've seen that time and again over the years. Well, the burning question is, can the Chicago Cubs make it back to the World Series for the first time since 1945? You know, it, in Giants territory, it's tough to make that prediction. Um, I have to confess that I've been a Cubs fan since, you know, since I was a kid and and the one team that I always hated more than any other team in the National League, even more than the Cardinals, which was the great Cub rivalry, was the Giants. Um, and I hated them because they used to come into Wrigley Field in the 50s and the 60s and just beat the living the Jesus out of, out of the Cubs. I mean, McCovey used to hit balls into Lake Michigan on, the regular, on a regular basis. I don't think they can get past Atlanta, but I'd be just delighted if they can. And if they can, I think it'll be a very good matchup with the Giants. In baseball, as in politics, as Yogi Berra once said, it ain't over till it's over. All right. All right, well, thanks, and hope you'll come on again. Yeah, I'd be glad to. All righty. Bye. The California Journal is a publication of StateNet, a Sacramento-based company that is, in fact, the only company that monitors 100% of all pending bills and regulations in the 50 states and Congress. StateNet was uh, created by some legislative experts who invented a computerized tracking system. This now has now evolved into the nation's leading source of legislative and regulatory information. Having them right here in Sacramento is a great resource for Sacramentans and hopefully you, the listeners, if we can get them to share some of their insights and wisdom with us. And I'm optimistic that they will. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM. Let's take a break.